following is a paid message for the Nigan and the Lone Ranger podcast. Hi, my name is Dan Lett, and I'm blessed to be the parent of two amazing kids, a boy and a girl. I think they're the best kids in the history of procreation. But then again, I'm their dad, so maybe I'm a bit biased. I think they're the best kids in the world, even when they leave their dirty socks on the kitchen counter, or when I find portions of uneaten Subway sandwiches lying on the floor of their bedrooms. And you know what? Who knows my kids better than me? Nobody. When you're constantly cleaning up after your kids, you get to know all of their deepest secrets. And because I know them so well, I made a point of explaining sex and sexuality to them at a young age. I wanted them to know that internet porn isn't a how-to guide for a fulfilling intimate relationship. I talked to both of them about the need to respect people of different cultures, races, and sexualities, and to stand up for anybody who is being bullied or abused. I had all these talks with my kids because, despite knowing they're the best kids in the world, I know my job as a parent is to help my kids treat other people, regardless of their differences, with compassion and understanding. That's why the Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast is the only podcast willing to fight for enhanced compassion and understanding in our school system. Gotta go now. One of my kids just tried to flush a pair of dirty underwear down the toilet. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Hi everybody, uh, welcome to the latest election edition edition of the Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast. This week, with 100% less Negan. <laughs> That's mean, Dan. <laughs> no, I know, but we, as we said, if you don't want people making fun of you, you show up for the podcast. And if you don't, well... You know, we know what happens. Uh, Nagan is uh, once again traveling on a secret mission. His whereabouts cannot be revealed. Nope. Uh, but uh, he'll be back for our final election edition edition uh, next week. Uh, but sitting in, sitting in the guest host chair this week is our producer and CJNU station manager, Adam Glenn. A guest host? That's right. You Before it was just, you just kept interrupting us. But now you're actually officially a guest host. Do I get a pay increase for this? Yeah. Uh, He's going to add a few extra zeros to the already long list of zeros. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Double nothing is a large Americano from Tom Bargain, apparently. So Other good coffee shops are, of course, available. Yes. <laughs> it's been an interesting week, though, hasn't it? I uh, mean, look at what's been going on with the polls. So we hit um, on this this week... On the Tuesday of this week, we hit the exact halfway point in the campaign. And uh, in short, uh, liberal scuffling, NDP still uh, pumping stuff out every day, although we're not sure to what effect. And uh, the Tories playing an unusual game of find Heather. Um, it is we, definitely strange. Yeah. Uh, she. They did re- just release uh, either last night or this morning. Uh, a, a television, what, what undoubtedly will be a television ad, um, you know, talking about how Manitoba is the best province in the world. And please don't, whatever you do, don't, uh, like throw the, the, that all out the window by electing the heathen NDP. I, I added the last part in, but the message is pretty clear. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, she, she does not do, uh, the party does announcements every day. She does an announcement about one every three days. Um, although she has, uh, you know, uh, respect to the premier, uh, leader of the PC party, she's been at a ton of debates. Like mm. there actually have been a lot of leader debates. I know that you wrote about one of those debates recently and mm. you were trying to work out realistically who are the winners in all of this. And I think based on having looked at the debate myself and read what you wrote, I came to much the same conclusion, which is it wasn't really revealing or engaging from any of them, although Dougal DeMont was probably the one who had the most uh, uh, stable platform to stand on because he doesn't have a record to refer back to in pointing the finger at both of the other parties. No, it, uh, for sure. I mean, the the uh, the television consortium televised debate uh, will be taking place uh, about uh, nine hours from now. Um, and uh, so, but uh, so the, uh, there's always... 
there is always a slim possibility that someone's going to lay a shot on somebody else that's going to, and that's going to uh, change the, the course of the election. I think a lot of us thinking back again, I keep referencing the 99 election, but in the televised debate there, um, in, in that election, uh, Gary Dewar went hard after, uh, incumbent, uh, P- uh, premier and PC leader Gary Philman on the vote splitting scandal of 1995. And there was, uh, an unfortunate cutaway shot where they went to the side and they had a picture of Dewar really going hard at, at Philman. And Philman had this unbelievably, uh, like, angry look on his face like it was he you know uh, he thought he was off camera and so it was a moment of genuine reflection but you know i think the the feeling was that the ndp had momentum but that pushed them over the edge the you know that that debate and it's interesting because that speaks volumes about the uh, medium through which the debate is being consumed and there are stories about that going back to the 60s and 70s in u.s presidential races but it's it's fascinating sometimes that uh when you can see the faces of the folks, sometimes uh, it makes a difference, even if they're saying the same words. Yeah, I mean, the, the certainly all the news media coverage of all the different debates so far have sort of indicated that the leaders gave as good as they got. Mm. Uh, so uh, I don't think there, there's been any there's been any uh, profound shift in the uh, you know in the in the narrative of the campaign. The narrative of the campaign, which according to a recently released free press probe research CTV News Winnipeg poll, would suggest that uh, the NDP are on the rise, fiercely on the rise. Uh, the Tories are on a precipitous decline, and the Liberals are languishing. Uh, right now, provincial party support. It's important to remember, too, that we went into this campaign. Uh, our June poll showed the NDP and the Tories tied province-wide, and the NDP was still a significant uh, double-digit lead in Winnipeg. This most recent poll, uh, you know, uh, shows uh, the uh, NDP leading now province-wide, forty-nine percent to thirty-eight, with the Liberals at nine percent. And uh, in Winnipeg, uh, you know, it's kind of an unprecedented situation. Uh, NDP fifty-seven, uh, PCs twenty-eight uh, percent. Uh, yeah. Um, and the Liberals, uh, you know, really running again below their their 2019 result with only 11 percent support. So I will say this again. I say this in every column I write about every poll. The numbers are less important than the trend lines. Mm. If a party is showing momentum, that is more important than the actual numbers that we attach them. And other polls that have been released seem to show the NDP with momentum. I don't know about you, but. As I'm driving around the city, I think I'm subconsciously making a mental tally of how many lawn signs I'm seeing. I'll be honest with you, I'm seeing a lot more for the PCs than I am for the NDP within the city. But I don't know if that's a sign of desperately wanting to get their presence physically out there Mm -hmm. versus the NDP maybe being more confident. I honestly don't know. Yeah, lawn signs, uh, I will uh, see your lawn signs and I will raise you a campaign office. Mm. And so uh, one of the things that I normally do uh, before the end of an election campaign is I make a point of driving around to as many campaign offices I know in hotly contested ridings at eight o'clock at night or later. And if the lights are on and there's people inside, that is a sign that people think they're in it. Right. Okay. If there are, and, uh, you know, and there are many times you go there at seven, eight o'clock and, uh, the door's locked, the lights are off, you know, there's nobody working the, uh, the phones, uh, doing voter ID stuff, then that is kind of a sign. Well, it's a sign of two things. It's a sign that, uh, party polling shows that they don't have a chance. So they've pulled all the volunteers out of that riding and moved them into another riding that they need to shore up or where they're on the attack or, uh, they've given up the will to live. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit harsh, but it, no, I, yeah, but it, it, you know, like it, and it's funny because yeah, I just, I don't, um, I, I don't put a lot of stock in lawn signs because so few people put them up now compared right. to before. Although I would like to thank the pranksters and the Manitoba liberal party who over the last few elections have, have ordered up signs for my lawn. Who knows? It's probably a Tory prankster. <laughs> 
calling the liberals and asking them to put a sign on my lawn. But I mean, usually at the end of every federal or, uh, or provincial election, uh, you know, my backyard, there's like seven signs stacked <laughs> up against the garage. So thanks to whatever prankster of whatever political stripe that you didn't do that. And I just realized that I just planted a seed of an idea. I really have no one to blame but myself now. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm honestly more surprised that the Liberals have not gained any more traction based on the fact that they seem to have been running a reasonably good and clean campaign. And I would say that in most, certainly in uh, our podcast conversation with Dougal Lamont, he's been giving a very good account of himself. Uh, yeah, I, I think he did a, a great interview. Um, you know, everything we threw at him, he, he answered, I thought, in a salient uh, fashion. Um, yeah, you know, I think the, the, the reason, like, I don't know why nobody seems to know exactly why I know that liberals, and maybe it's an excuse, believe that, uh, federal liberal, uh, unpopularity has bled over. That's certainly possible. Mm. But I also think to the, you know, the, uh, uh, the Liberals did not run a candidate in every fifty in all fifty seven. Which ridings. was a surprise because I think they very much intended to do so. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dugall made it sound as if you know it was part of this federal liberal backlash. People didn't want to step forward. The fact is that you know what, they can nominate, uh, you know, the kid who answers the phone in Dugall Lamont's office to be the candidate in Flin Flon, uh, just to put a name on a ballot. And and you know what. Paper, they're called paper candidates. Every party has a handful of paper candidates, like where they have no chance of winning, but they, you know, they do want to put a name on the ballot. And, you know, the, like just not registering a paper candidate in those eight rural and northern ridings is, it's a bad sign for the capacity, the organizational capacity of the party. One thing that I do think will be interesting to watch this year is the fact that the uh, voting system has changed slightly insofar as votes are going to be tabulated a lot more quickly and we're going to know more earlier in the night. And I really hope that happens. So do I. <laughs> I, you know, anything is possible. Yeah. Yeah, like the poll, the polls close at 8 p.m. CBC's on a schedule. They need to declare a winner by 8.04. So I really, <laughs> you know, like regardless of whether we've counted any of the votes, they just, you know, kind of want to get in there. Sorry. Is that too soon to go back to that? But no. other, other good outlets are, of course, available. Yes, that's right. Um, we're we're yeah. all just prognosticating yeah. at this point, of course. No, for sure. I mean, I think if the poll results are not just an indication of momentum, but magnitude in the changes support, then uh, it should be revealed pretty early. Um, but then again, I, I am going to stick with my original forecast, my prognostication, which is not, I'm not picking a winner, but I am saying that it's going to be tight. Right. I still think it'll be tighter than we think. And for those of you scoring at home, 30 is the magic number for bingo in this election. 30 seats get you, 29 gets you a majority, but 30 gets you a majority where you can afford to sacrifice one MLA to be speaker, right. which is huge. So yeah, so 30 is the number. Uh, and that is, there's no uh, easy segue. So I'm just going to say. Well, I was, if you want, if you want a nice segue, <laughs> I was going to say, well, with the NDP surging in the polls and the trends seem to be moving in a certain direction, what a fascinating time to have as our featured guest this week, the leader of the Manitoba NDP. Oh my God. Behold the wonder of the professional radio, you know, journalist and, and thinking <laughs> on, on the feet. Uh, I just like to say, yeah, I just like to think at this point, this could end up being the Adam and the Lone Ranger podcast. Uh, like, you know, Nigan may be dead to us uh, after this if we get a good reaction. So What Dan says does not represent my thoughts, <laughs> nor the thoughts of it. No. Yeah. Nigan, we miss you, and yeah, yeah. we hope you're having fun out where you were. And, of course, Nigan was in the studio with us when we had a chance to sit down with Wob Canoe. Yeah. So uh, here is our feature interview with the second of the three party leaders, NDP leader Wob Canoe. In the second uh, of our series of podcasts interviewing the leaders of Manitoba's main political parties, we're uh, very pleased to have NDP leader Wab Canoe here today. Uh, and this Wab is actually a return. Visitor. I was going to say our first return guest. Yeah, so you didn't learn high the honor. first time. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're supposed to. You're you know, trying to scare me away. <laughs> I, had, I had somebody tell me that this podcast is a little like skydiving. 
So like the first time you jump out of the plane, it's not a problem because you don't know what it's like. But the second time someone asks you to jump out of the plane, it's like, well, I, you know, I'll get back to you. Yeah. So we no, we appreciate. <laughs> oh, you came the, for the uh, second dive. Yeah, we appreciate the uh, uh, the second visit and this now uh, in the in the uh, the crucible of an election campaign. Uh, this is the part of the job you sign up for. This is uh, well, this is where rubber meets the road. Yeah. Um, although I have to say, so first question out of the gate, um, you know, by law, uh, we have a fixed date election law and, uh, it requires a 28 day campaign. And apparently the NDP who are never happy with anything, uh, had to, they, so you guys wanted a 56 day campaign and started campaigning a full 28 days before the actual campaign started. So obviously that's a deliberate strategy. So catch the others off guard. You have too much to say for 28 days. Oh, there's a campaign slogan. But what's the, <laughs> what, what's the, the, uh, the real strategy behind the strategy? Well, I think that, um, we really want to get the message out to Manitobans is, is the basic thing. And so as soon as the government went into, uh, the blackout period, we decided to launch our campaign. And, uh, we think that the more time that we have to, travel around the province and talk about our ideas and to lay out our plan, the better it is for us. And I think uh, the PCs probably calculate the opposite. They want a shorter election campaign. They want lower vo voter turnout. We want higher voter turnout as the NDP. We want more people engaged. We want more people talking about the issues. So that's why we launched our campaign uh, early. And it's been uh, pretty great to talk to Manitobans. It's been very positive so far. We, I mean, you have lots of brand new people who this is in many ways their first or maybe uh, first, second, but go around when it comes to an election campaign. Uh, are you seeing people sort of, is it a steep learning curve? Is it, uh, this is your second, right? Yeah, this is a uh, second time that I've been able to, to run in a general election. It's a high honor. I feel very lucky to do what I do. And getting to talk to people around the province is, is the best part of the job, which is what this, this period is all about. So we're at a given press conference each day. But I mean, yesterday a guy stopped in a truck and he started, you know, yelling from out his window during the press conference. And we actually had, even though that sounds like it's going to get off on to a terrible footing <laughs> when you describe it that way, we actually had a lot of common ground and it was a positive conversation this morning. Before we even went to the press conference, I'm just leaving my front door and somebody stops in a, a vehicle that is from their employer. I'm not going to name it because you want to respect the person's privacy, but he stops in his employer's vehicle and he just starts, you know, stream of consciousness. Here's what I think about the PCs. Here's what I think about you. I'm not usually, but this time I think I'm going to support you. And, you know, it's because of this and that. I'm frustrated with the direction. Here's what I like about what you're doing. Here's some ideas for things I think you could change. <laughs> like he just launched into this four minute. I find that really fascinating. How people think, how Manitobans approach the issues. I, I believe Manitobans are, are smart. Like even folks who may not follow the ins and outs that, you know, the people on this podcast discussing right now, uh, you know, to the detail that we do, people generally catch the broad strokes of what's happening and are pretty tuned in to whether they buy it, they don't buy it, what their feelings are on a given topic. And so it's a learning experience for me to continuously try to stay tapped into that and try to f hear where people are at. And I do think that the healthcare theme is really strong. And then the cost of living stream theme is very strong. Cost of living has been this issue that's been boiling, simmering, uh, for a while now, but recently it really seems to, to, to have emerged onto, uh, the top of everyone's, uh, minds. And I think, you know, if you talk to our candidates, to your point about our team, I think that they'd, they, they'd say the same thing. We got people who are running. We have one candidate who's who's got a legitimate shot at becoming the longest-serving MLA in Manitoba history if he gets elected this time and maybe one other time after that. And we have other people who are right at the beginning of their political careers, and I think most of their experiences are probably similar to what I'm I'm describing here. I think the um, you know there there is always though a, a dynamic tension in an election campaign about everything that you want to say, and I I have uh, no. 
like I, I completely believe and I actually kind of empathize the idea that we've got a lot to say. We want to get out and say it. We want to meet people. But uh, like, you know, is there not a risk at some point that if you if you have so much to say, like if you bombard people uh, so often uh, over such a long period of time that, uh, you know, it starts to become kind of noise in the background? Well, I think if we consider healthcare, which is our top issue, and it's the top issue if you look at public opinion research for Manitobans, or if you just go canvassing and you talk to people uh, on their doorstep or on the street, it is such a big part of government. It's such a big system that it requires speaking about it over multiple days. And so I think if you look at the the broad contours of our campaign, the election campaign we've run, when it comes to healthcare specifically, we came out first and said it has to start with staffing. Nothing else in healthcare is going to move forward unless we address the staffing issues. So here's our plan on staffing. You know, it starts with retaining the people we currently have, then it's about recruitment and education, and then it's about a plan for the future. Then once we touched on staffing, then we're like emergency services. ERs, the ERs that were closed, but also new ERs in areas that need them. And then from ERs, there's an intermediate level between your family doctor and before you get to the ER, which is urgent care. But we're proposing more clinics like the one on Corridon, where you book online, go in, see an ER doc, and you're back in your car in 15 minutes. So that in-between level of care, there's primary care, there's home care. There's so many different aspects of this prism that is the healthcare system that I think it requires us spending mm-hmm. a lot of time explaining each of these ideas on a given day, hopefully communicating and connecting with people like, here's what we really got to get right about staffing. Let's say, here's what we got to do on staffing in particular. Some days even drilling down more specifically, here's what we have to do about hiring paramedics. Here's what we have to do about hiring nurses. And so for us, that's part of the reason why we think a, a longer campaign is beneficial because you can tune in on a given day and maybe catch what we're saying about emergency rooms, catch what we're saying about uh, neighborhood clinics. But if you don't tune in each and every day, you miss some of those specific announcements. Hopefully you catch that we have a comprehensive plan on healthcare that includes everything from helping seniors age in place in the community all the way to what do you do in the case of an emergency right. and everything in between. Well, so much of the campaign has been uh, about replacing things. And I mean, in many ways, talking about replacing things that the PCs have cut and talking about the Dauphin Jail, for example, and things like that. But the, the real kickoff for the campaign has been was in the middle of August. Uh, I was, I think all of us in the newsroom at the Free Press were notified of a, a big speech that you were giving at the Canadian Mennonite University and uh, well-attended broadcast online and uh it was really a speech that was addressed meant to address crime which i think is also maybe number two of people's concern on uh, the campaign trail after healthcare, uh but turned into a speech that really talked about your vision as a premier for all manitobans and uh i think in many ways there's there's a very iconic line in in the speech that says that the conservatives uh, don't really want to talk about the crime. They want to talk about the fact that you have a braid. And so we've been on the podcast talking about it as a sort of, I have a braid speech, you know, so, because, because it's really it's a about. Very Negan joke. I'll say. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So or I'm coming out. No, 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 I'm coming out now. It's my joke. Okay. <laughs> but I was afraid to say it. Uh, so Dan I checked the one who called and yeah. said, Hey, yeah. what do you think about this? And I said, well, it's probably better if I say stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. But anyways, so. Okay. so <laughs> Fair. But, but. I mean, so much about this campaign as it was with previous campaigns, and I think people perhaps thought that the tone would shift when Brian Pallister left the party, uh, would be just, it's just been really about you. It's been about taking shots at you and your past, and and we've talked about this in the podcast before. Uh, Was that speech meant to divert? Was it meant to address, uh, was it really meant to address crime or was it meant to be this speech that to give hope to Manitobans about who you are and, and what your vision is? I think it's both. Crime is an important issue. And I do want Manitobans to know that my view, and I think the view of where most people are at, is when something terrible happens in the street, there needs to be accountability. You got to be tough in your response there. But we also know because of our experiences here in Manitoba, going back to the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry and earlier, because of George Floyd, because of the TRC, any number of public journeys we've been on together, 
that we also need to improve things when we're dealing with people once they get into the justice system. And here's where I talked in the speech about too often prisons and um, institutions become gangster university. You send somebody who's a low-level offender with addictions into these institutions, and they come out a hardened criminal with gang affiliations. That doesn't make any of us safer. So I also wanted to challenge some of the status quo approaches that I think are very common sense. I think if you talk to a correctional officer, you talk to the average person on the street, you talk to Manitobans from any region, they'll tell you we need a new approach. We do need accountability and to be tough on crime in the first instance. We also got to be smarter on the way we tackle the causes of crime. We got to be tough on that too. So first and foremost, it was about dealing with that and getting that message out there, which I think is where Manitobans are at. But also, and I'm glad you picked up on this, the theme of the speech is unity. It's unity for Manitoba. And part of that is political, but part of that is also, I think, a value statement for the province. When we talk about these really tough issues, it's easy to get discouraged about health care because you look at the frustration of the front lines here in Manitoba and you're like, wow, things are really bad. And then you turn on the national news and then it's like, it's really bad in BC and Ontario as well. So the average Manitoban might be forgiven for saying, you know what, maybe we can't even fix healthcare. But I fundamentally reject that. And I say that, you know what, we can do difficult things. We can do tough things if we do them together. Same thing with crime in this speech. We're dealing with trying to have a strong response to bad things we see happening in our communities today while also learning lessons from grappling with these generational issues like the intergenerational impacts of residential schools. That's not easy. The only way we're going to do it is if we do it together and we pull in voices from all sides, voices from law enforcement, community, educators, different generations, different cultural communities. And so really at the end of the day, there is a political message in the speech, which is that one of the choices that you have in this election is not just who's going to close ERs, who's going to open ERs, who's going to, you know, support schools, who's going to cut schools. One of the choices you have in this election is who's going to divide people in very cynical and targeted ways to try and eke out little marginal increases in vote share as the PCs are doing, or who is going to run on a proposition that Manitobans are all one people and we're all in this thing together. And that's, you know, the message, make life better together. We're saying unity as opposed to division. And so that speech, among other things, was the opportunity to say, here's how I see it. I'm the son of an Indigenous father and a non-Indigenous mother. I'm somebody who's had amazing experiences within this cultural community, but I'm super humble at the amazing opportunities I've been given as a Canadian. And if nothing else, I think my life experience, the entirety of my past, if you will, has given me uh, the motivation and desire to try and bring that out of other people and remind other people in this province that this is a great place when we work together. This is a great future we have when we work together and to try and appeal to that. And I think at the end of the day, it also fits with our party's mission because that is fundamentally a, a progressive idea. At the end of the day, the basic progressive idea is we do things together. And the basic conservative idea is you do things by yourself. So we, and we, we have had conversations about this recently on the podcast and, and offline as well. But, uh, and I will, I'll admit, uh, first off, I'm going right to one of the more cynical interpretations of, of your speech. But leading up to the speech, there was, there were efforts, uh, and not just by progressive conservatives, but I also think by some people in the Indigenous community to suggest that the NDP didn't want to talk that much about Indigenous issues, didn't want to talk about uh, the uh, uh, the landfill search. Um, I mean, we, uh, not, and I'll ask you for your interpretation, we certainly feel as if there is uh, some sort of a backlash against reconciliation right now. I think I'm confident in saying I detect that the Tories are trying to play off that a little bit. Uh, but, um, you know, is this, I, I want to be the premier for all Manitobans has been interpreted even in the parts of the indigenous community as being a, well, I don't want to be the indigenous premier as well. And, uh, I will say, I'm not exactly sure how you win that, uh, like, you know, a discussion like that or position yourself like that. But uh, have you thought about these things about how different people are interpreting your speech? I definitely thought about it, and I would say I want to be the best premier that I could be, not the most indigenous premier that I could be. 
And so absolutely, I hope that I have a role in helping young people, including young Indigenous people, know that achievement is possible. But I want to fix healthcare and balance the budget and make your life more affordable. Easy statements to make, very difficult things to implement in practice. And I hope Manitobans evaluate me along those criteria, along the merit of my suitability and ability to deliver on those tasks and to make their life better. And that's why I'm running. So yes, my Indigenous identity, my Anishinaabe uh, identity is, uh, is part of who I am for sure and is part of what I'm putting forward in front of people. But I won't be able to fix healthcare because I'm Indigenous. I won't be able to balance the budget because I'm Indigenous. I think I will be able to do that if I have the necessary skills to work with the people who run the healthcare system, who mm-hmm. run the government, if I have the necessary ability to reach out and bring people together. Yeah. Being Indigenous is part of that. That has certainly formed in to me building those things over the years. Has, but has what, the backlash, uh, you know, I think a that's a really back, interesting yeah. idea. Yeah. I don't think it's a backlash. I'll say that. I understand what you're seeing there. Yep. I see, you know when you download a big file on the internet? (laughs) Your file is 50% loaded, 60% loaded. Reconciliation is 50% loaded. It's 60% loaded. I don't think it's a backlash in the sense that I don't think we accomplished reconciliation and then people liked it and now there's a backlash to it because I don't think we fully realized as, as a society what reconciliation is meant to deliver. I think they really got it right when they chose the phrase, every child matters. To me, that is a very clear articulation of what reconciliation means. It means when we get far enough along this road together on reconciliation, you are going to live in a Manitoba where you're like, yep, every kid has an equal shot at becoming a medical doctor. Every kid has a chance to be a CEO or to play on the Jets, whether you grow up on a reserve, in the inner city, in the suburbs, up north, in rural. Every child has the same potential, right? And what's going to determine how far they go is how hard they work, yep. you know, how smart they are about the moves that they have to make, how respectful they are of other people. So I think what we're really seeing right now on issues like the landfill search, on other issues that become hot topics in between Indigenous Manitobans and other Manitobans, is we see we're still on the journey towards reconciliation. We haven't fully arrived at a point where everyone has that same facility or understanding or ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes or someone else's moccasins. We're still on this journey. We've taken important steps. We've taken important strides. But if you think of that progress bar, it's still loading. And it's by no means going to be yeah, some an files easy are, journey. Some files are really big and really slow things down. <laughs> and uh, I like that metaphor. I'm thinking a lot about it right now. But also that uh, to be an Indigenous Premier would be to look at everyone, right? And mm-hmm. to think of everyone. So uh, I think that it's, as you pointed out, it's impossible. You don't just leave that at the door yeah. when you become the Premier. And uh, turning into it, I think, is something that uh, it was an important step in this campaign because I was certainly being pointed out for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, this is, a, I think, this is probably the most remarkable Manitoba election for that. But in so many ways, it's led up to that. If we think about the reason that Brian Pallister was removed by his own yeah. party, it was directly because of the comments around Indigenous peoples. The fact is, you have to be able to govern a place with a significant amount of Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Manitoba, in lots of ways, will be that forerunner for the country, but also the culmination of a long history of Indigenous foundation in this place, which then cares for everyone. Yeah. I think that's an interesting that's an interesting perspective. I, I want to ask you about some fiscal stuff. Is that a, is, can we move sure. on to fiscal stuff? Fiscal is, is good. Who wants to talk about fiscal stuff? Yeah, um, I do. You've <laughs> promised uh, a lot. Uh, I think the typical stereotype of people saying things about the NDP, the number one thing I hear out there is that spend, spend, spend. And uh, you've promised to hire 300 nurses, 400 physicians, paramedics, home care staff, open up the Dauphin jail. I talked about a little bit of, so much about this has been replacing some really hard austerity cuts, but of course your own vision as well about expanding the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your plans to, to pay for some of these things, particularly when you see on the other side of the political spectrum, they're uh, op- talking about having a court trial to get rid of the carbon tax. Well, the, the current version of the Manitoba PCs has no semblance of fiscal responsibility associated with it. 
No, nobody who's seriously fiscally responsible would look at the promises they've laid out and, and, and think that they can balance the budget at a time when GDP growth has stalled in Canada. So let's just put the PC credibility on this issue to the side and park it. On our side of the ledger, it's fully costed platform. We are committing to doing a lot of things, but we laid it all out first and then explained at every step of the way how much each step is going to cost and how to pay for it. This interesting thing has happened starting under Pallister, but it's continued under Stephenson, where they basically park half a billion dollars in discretionary funding in every year's budget. And then typically what happens is March Madness rolls around and then they have big giveaways to some companies. They mail out checks to everybody. They do these things that they've been trying to do for the past two years uh, since they've been um, really studying the polls and trying to <laughs> turn things around on that side of the equation. That money is built into the budget now on an annual basis. And our fundamental fiscal proposal is instead of scrambling each year on initiatives designed to chase popularity, why don't we use that money to invest in healthcare? Why don't we use that money to invest in communities and the economy to create jobs and to make life more affordable? So that's basically how uh, our fiscal plan works, is the money is there. It exists because of more transfer payments to the provincial government, and it's currently just being held in um, a discretionary you know, part of the budget right now that the PCs have been using each and every year. And we're saying we have a multi-year strategic plan focused on healthcare and some other economic investments that we are comfortable sharing with you as a four-year plan that we think would be a much wiser and strategic use of this money to help communities. So you're saying that this could happen almost immediately because of the money's already in the budget? Yes. We're not talking about waiting a whole new budgetary year for a new vision or we're talking about it can happen very quickly. Yeah, we can start on the path immediately and this path takes us to balance within a first four-year mandate should we get the great opportunity to form government. So there's a couple of uh, uh, pledges that came through early um, and I'm going to suggest that um, I think most people, um, and I, I don't like, you're out talking to average Manitobans, uh, I'll admit I don't. <laughs> so I'm talking to strategists, fundraisers, sure. yep. inside people in all the parties. So um, reduction in gas tax, yep. affordability measure, uh, and hydro freeze, mm -hmm. affordability measure. Now, uh, there, uh, the hydro freeze in particular is a complex uh, pledge that you've made, and I'm not going to do justice to it right now. I'm going to admit that right off. However, I will tell you that the people within the NDP who are not working in the campaign, but I still think are opinion leading, will say, and I'll say for them, have trouble believing that you guys actually believe these are good ideas. What they do believe is that it's smart campaigning. You are taking arrows out of the ND, uh, out of the Tory quiver. So you're, you know, gas tax, you know, you're, you're, you've got an affordability measure. It's a tax reduction of sorts takes, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, attention away from the fact that the federal carbon tax is charged on natural gas and manageable hydro bills. And uh, and the hydro freeze, well, you know, the Tories have made a hash out of hydro. Yep, sure uh, but but in, in terms of, I think the people I've talked to, and I concur with them, find these to be uh, a little uh, outside uh, uh, what, what we would expect NDP policies to be on hydro and fossil fuels. So I'll sort of say, like, explain the thinking behind it, uh, before I, I have some other cheeky observation to make. But yeah, like, what, like, cause these are not, these are not typical NDP policies. Well, that might be a good thing when you're trying to persuade more people than have voted NDP in the past to vote for you, would be my first comment. Um, on the hydro rate freeze, I think our team, myself included, have a huge belief in how important hydro is to the future of this province. And it touches on so many things, primarily the future of our economy, but also climate change, reconciliation with hydro-affected Indigenous nations, workforce development and good jobs that hydro employs people in every part of the province, right? Mm -hmm. This is, you know, people everywhere work for hydro. You have to have a strong utility. And because it's a publicly owned corporation you have to have the public support for it. You know, hydro also has to worry about the public opinion 
And I think one of the fundamental ways that hydro can rebuild public support for its mandate is by helping people out right now through this cost of living crisis. And so as part of a plan to combat climate change and advance reconciliation and create clean energy jobs for the future, I think an affordability pledge from hydro helps to create the social license for us to do that. Can I just, it's yeah. how, but you guys were really strong on Bill 36, which for those of you scoring at home, yep. was a bill to eviscerate the regulatory system in Manitoba that allows the government for at least the first five years uh, by cabinet decree to set hydro rates without any thoughtful analysis. So you guys, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill 36 bad. What, you, you bad wanna, and yeah. we would like to repeal it. Yeah. Okay, but yeah. repealing it and restoring faith in the PUB, even the Consumers Coalition came out and said, you're not going to restore faith in the PUB or guarantee long-term hydro stability by <laughs> issuing a political directive to freeze rates. And we won't. We'll work with hydro. We'll figure out how much revenue would you need to offset to deliver a rate freeze? And we believe that number is $37.5 million because it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's just shy of 20 million in terms of one percentage increase equals that amount of revenue each year. We'll work with Hydro. How much would you need to deliver a rate freeze? Okay, we're going to reduce the uh, royalty payments you make to the province by that amount. And then you submit your general rate application, send a GRA to the pub. And we'll have the Public Utilities Board be the final arbiter of this matter. Okay. So I do think it is consistent with a rebuilding confidence in the pub process. And then, you know, that takes us to the gas tax because half of the gas tax thing is to cut the gas tax while people are living through this inflationary period, this cost of living moment. But the other half is while we cut the gas tax, we also want to bring gasoline prices within the purview of the Public Utilities Board because I think... Uh, the experts, including some of the people that you're referring to there, would agree that there's a market failure. And here I apologize mm-hmm. for making everyone remember their first year economics courses, right? But it's clear that there's price gouging going on, even if we're never going to get that smoking gun that this company colluded with that company, because I don't think we'll ever find that smoking gun. But it's clear gas prices move in, uni- in unison in Manitoba, and they move in unison in a way that is not correlated with the price of oil. So the price of oil could stay flat, heading into a summer long weekend, and then gas prices mysteriously spike at a time when everyone's going to gas up to go drive to the lake. And so I think there's a a need to um, regulate the prices there to help the average consumer uh, respond to this market failure. Which brings me to the environmental side of the gas tax pledge, which is this, to me, is an important part of a just transition. The left wing is losing the argument on the carbon tax right now. I think everyone can see that that's happening. Um, and whether the federal liberals climb down from this or not, you know, that's outside of my hands. But what I do think we need to do is we need to send a message to that average blue collar person, the average middle class person out there who's maybe hearing all this stuff mm-hmm. that, uh, you have to make a choice between clean energy and, uh, you know, your family's economic well-being. We need to send a message. You know what? A party that's on the progressive side, like the Manitoba NDP is on your side too. And we're not going to just leave you folks behind. So yeah, for six months or 12 months, however this inflationary, however long it lasts, we will temporarily reduce gas prices to help you get by. By the way, we're going to do EV and plug-in hybrid incentives. We're going to build out the charging network. We're going to invest in hydrogen for Winnipeg Transit. We're going to invest in retrofitting your home, heat pumps, making uh, all the steps that we know need to happen to get to net zero. And then hopefully... That is the genesis of a real just transition in Manitoba, where people can look and say, yeah, they are climate leaders, but they also understand that most families cannot afford to make the switch to entirely clean energy just yet. And so they're going to help us Mm -hmm. get through this period until we can afford to do so. The Dunsky report, which um, I'm going to take a a pat at the back here. The Dunsky report that the Tory government wouldn't release and that I got a copy of. (laughs) Well done. uh, Thank you. uh, Says... There needs to be a made in Manitoba uh, carbon tax. Is there a made in Manitoba carbon tax in the uh, near future of an NDP government? That is one ideological perspective. And let's not forget that the carbon tax idea actually comes from the right wing. So yet again, you have the conservatives attacking an idea that they came up with. And this sort of thing happens all the time. In order for us to have a strong economy, we need to guarantee price stability for the large employers. 
which include foundries and, you know, large, uh, processing facilities and some of the mines in northern Manitoba. And so there, I think we have to look at a, an approach that is going to be consistent for them in the future. And that is basically guaranteeing, uh, stability for their operations here in the province. And that's part of the, let's bring the blue collar with us towards this just transition that most uh, folks in the climate uh, world seem to invest in. And I think we should have a serious conversation in Manitoba about alternative approaches that deal with the consumer. And here's what I want to predicate this argument on. When I was going to school, which is uh, more than a few decades ago now, <laughs> and I was in this in these undergraduate economics courses, and you tell me if you heard the same thing. We always had the prof saying, you have to make the big polluters pay. You have to make the big polluters pay because right now, until they internalize the externalities, was the quote of the day, until they do that, they're getting a free ride and pollution is going to increase because they don't have to bear the true cost of their actions. So that was the argument. A few decades ago, the argument was, we need to make the big polluters pay. What we ended up with was a regime that makes the consumer pay. And the big polluters are just as, if not more, profitable than ever. So I understand the urgency that people who are climate conscious feel and the protect, the protective kind of sentiment that like we, 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 we think we may have got a win here and we want to protect it. But let's look at it, let's look at it from the perspective of a just transition and trying to ensure we bring people along. Is making the consumer bear the cost of the big polluters actions the ultimate be all end all of climate policy or should we be looking at other tools in the toolbox? And so I think maybe a group oh. like Dunsky could return with a few more uh, suggestions uh, <laughs> along those lines. So, I mean, but one thing that we haven't quite gotten to at this point is perhaps uh, maybe while we're talking about um, fiscal responsibility or how we're going to pay for things, uh, is it is that the key? Is that the key to get big polluters on board or get co corporations on board? I mean, you've spoken, um, you've been accused anyways of shifting your position on mining uh, as being now you're favorable of mining. Maybe you've always been favorable of mining, but certainly uh, the conservatives have said that you've flipped on that. Uh, is it that mining is the is the gateway in Manitoba? Is that, I mean, we all know that lithium is in the north. There's this big move for EV vehicles. And Eastman. Uh, yeah. Billions of dollars. Uh, in Ontario investments that we've that we're seeing in companies and so on, uh, is that the key for Manitoba is to get on the board for mining? Because obviously you're never going to talk about sales tax and the NDP relationship with sales taxes are nor would are I ever, disastrous. Nor would I. I will never raise the PST, and I don't think a value added tax is the right approach for provincial government. By the way, this happens all the time in the yeah. legislature. Anytime we do a press conference, the Tories have people walk by with heavy boxes. We call it. We we call, have, yeah. I, don't, I don't think this was coordinated, but we no. have custodians who are uh, they're doing important very work, big. But they're pushing <laughs> loud carts behind no, we us. We which, refer to it as radio verite. Yeah, there you go. It's where uh, we want you to have the full. Right now, so. Yeah, because, you know, like there was, we had a, a chance to do it right out in front in the driveway, the Fairmont Hotel. <laughs> Could have done it at Portage and Maine. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so anyways, uh, mining. mining. Yeah. Mining is, um, should be a really strong part of Manitoba's economic future. You think of communities in Northern Manitoba in particular where people want to work, but there are not enough jobs. How are we going to deliver jobs in those regions? Mining is potentially one of the answers along with things like hydrogen and, you know, um, building up broadband and things like that. When it comes to getting the balance right between the environment and mining activity, there's basically an equation that we need to solve as a province collectively, which is how much activity can we pursue that advances the global goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions without negatively impacting our local environment? And I would say there is probably a lot more economic activity we could be pursuing right now that would get these elements for 
electrifying transportation, building solar panels, building the microprocessors that help to do all the you know, complicated, um, you know, environmental regulation of buildings and things like that. There's probably a lot more that we could be pursuing and developing here in Manitoba that would help lower GHG emissions overall. And if we can do that in a way that doesn't negatively impact the local environment, whether that's a lake or whether that's land or whether that's the air, then I think that we should do so as part of a climate conscious uh, approach. And I think about it on the personal level as well. I'm somebody who believes in water on a plane of indigenous spiritual awareness. I'm somebody who picks wild rice and fishes and hunts with my kids and I do all these things. And there's a mine, gold mine, a new gold that moved just upstream of our home First Nation about a decade ago. And I had concerns. What's it going to mean for us who live downstream and do these activities downstream? But when I saw the guys who I grew up with, who up until then were either only commercial fishers or could work for the band or who were on assistance, when I saw them get good paying jobs and start to drive nice vehicles and take their kids to Disneyland and turn their economic situation around and the communities were able to negotiate environmental guarantees and we're still able to practice our way of life today, I started to recognize, you know what, there is a path forward here. And so right now we're in a global moment. If we zoom out from the province to look at the, the global perspective, Europe is pivoting away from Russian gas because of the war in Ukraine. America is trying to play catch up with China on critical minerals because China has effectively sewn up so much of the world's supply. And so we have these two huge allies and trading blocks that are searching for low carbon economy fundamentals. Manitoba has the ability to be a key supplier. We can supply hydrogen to Germany and the rest of Western Europe to displace Russian natural gas. We can provide critical minerals to the United States of America. And by the way, we can say, relative to other jurisdictions that you may uh, source these things from, we can do it with higher environmental standards here, higher labor standards, higher human rights standards. And I think that's the value proposition that could grow Manitoba's economy from where it is now to being hopefully a powerhouse but at the very least a showcase where people could look at Manitoba and say, you know what? A province of that size was able to have an advanced growing economy and make the right moves to build up a low carbon economy for the future. And I think that that's the fundamental vision that we're trying to pursue uh, and lay out for Manitobans as our economic plan. I want to touch on a couple of healthcare uh, issues that, that you guys have been uh, very active on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll start uh, first with the reopening the ERs which is an issue that uh, I've written so much about it. Uh, I can safely say I'm tired of hearing my own voice on the subject, <laughs> but, but I think it is fat. Like I think, I think the idea uh, and then how the Tories impl- executed on the idea and the result that that's had, particularly on the nursing. Uh, like I'm thinking about going back to school or writing a thesis because I mean, it, but it's been fascinating in a negative way. Um, uh, so, but because these issues are connected reopening the ERs. So I'll submit to you that the original plan to close the ERs was actually a, like a pretty good idea in, in, as an idea. Uh, and it was responding to some very real problems about the fact that Manitoba can't attract all the medical specialists that are needed and all of the nurses in, in specific uh, fields to staff five or six fully staffed ERs. We just, we don't have those people. The, 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 the chance we're going to get them is remote. Uh, you've promised to reopen the three ERs, but to do that, you're going to have to find the people. Yeah. At the very least, that's Staffing inaccurate. Staffing has to come first. Okay. Yeah. So, but I, I'm just mm-hmm. wondering the, the reason why, because this idea came from a report that was commissioned by the NDP and they commissioned the report because they couldn't find the people to staff six full ERs. So I'm, I'm just wondering now, uh, uh, I'm not easy is not the word, but I'm just saying like, is, is there, is there any kind of a recruitment campaign that's really going to find those people? Yeah. It's going to be hard work. hundred percent staffing up healthcare right now is going to be a difficult task. And that's why we got to do it together. That's why the message of unity 
is at the center of our campaign because the only way we accomplish something hard like hiring nurses during a nationwide healthcare staffing crisis is by being ambitious but also being skilled at bringing people together to accomplish a, a difficult goal. So I fully recognize that this is an ambitious task and it's something that I think is important. I think that we have to recognize that COVID changed everything for healthcare. So all the reports and opinions that existed prior to the pandemic, I don't think are as relevant today because maybe one of the most important proof points is the beds that we lost when they, when the PCs closed the emergency rooms are a big part of the reason all of us had to stay indoors during the third wave. All of us had to stay on lockdown for longer because of that. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a very direct firsthand experience most of us mm-hmm. had with how the healthcare cuts took this province in the wrong uh, direction. I also want to clarify, I, I fully recognize everyone talks about this as reopening ERs. And I just want to just, you know, keep giving the college try that these are new ERs at the same sites. And you may think that's a little cute, but I'm serious about it in the sense that this is about building Manitoba's healthcare system for the future. Mm-hmm. And these emergency rooms are not going to look the way that they did in the past. So at Victoria, a big part of the proposition there is that this is a geographic issue. You have a huge population, nearly a quarter of a million people in South Winnipeg and surrounding communities like Oak Bluff who don't have an emergency department close Mm -hmm. by to serve them. And so we need to stand up an emergency room there to meet the population needs and growing population of this part of the city and province, along with some other things like a fire hall and things like that. Seven Oaks right now at that site, a huge amount of paramedics and ambulances are tied up each night transporting dialysis patients from there to the HSC or from St. B to Seven Oaks. So the idea of putting a new emergency room there is about building up overnight dialysis capacity, advancing uh, the monitoring capabilities, about giving them the tools to be able to take care of the very sick patients that they have, Mm -hmm. with that being our kidney hospital, our kidney center of excellence in the provincial hospital network. And so that's about reducing interfacility transfers. So not only do the patients at Seven Oaks get better Mm -hmm. care when we deliver that, but you free up so many paramedics and ambulances that consequently then improve response times around the city, which takes us to Concordia. And at Concordia, you've got one of the best hip and knee teams of surgeons anywhere in the country, nationally recognized, nationally renowned surgery group at the Concordia Hospital that when the ER closed, lost the ability to do more complicated surgeries. And now they just do the the, the relatively straightforward hip and knees at a time that we're in a surgical backlog, surgical wait Mm -hmm. time crisis. So you put the ER there, more beds, more enhanced man- monitoring capabilities, higher nurse to patient ratios. Now you take the shackles off that surgery group. That surgery group can do other forms of joint surgeries. They can do the more complicated hip and knee surgeries. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a significant part of reducing surgical wait times going forward into the future. So the fundamental proposition is, yes, we need to repair the mistakes that the PCs made but we're also very strategically looking ahead at what are the future needs of healthcare in Manitoba mm-hmm. and targeting targeting these investments towards meeting those needs. I, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say as well. And I, and in saying this, you got like we're talking about uh, you guys have made a big announcement on nursing. Uh, so, but you know, really the the uh, uh, the ruination of the relationship between government and the nursing profession over the last six, seven years is probably the major reason why we'll never know if Peachy could work. It could have worked. Like we, like maybe Peachy could have worked, but we'll never know for sure. Because, well, and COVID. Yeah. And, and, and COVID yeah. for sure. Um, so you guys, I, I think it's a consensus among the parties actually that something has to be done. Uh, nurses have retired. They fled the province, yeah. but more importantly, uh, Potentially, thousands of them have left to work in the private sector where they have more control, Mm -hmm. better pay. Um, So I will say from talking to my friends in the nursing industry uh, profession, I actually think it might be the Jacques Parizeau lobster trap. I think once they got out of the public system, the idea of offering them anything to come back to the private system, it's unfathomable. Uh, But I'm not saying it's not worth a try. But so it's, do, do you actually have a clear idea of what those nurses want? 
like really want I to, so, to yeah. bring them back yeah. en masse. Yeah. yeah. I think it requires a change in government. I think it's a Humpty Dumpty situation. The people who broke it are not going to be able to fix it. And so you do need a new government to do this because I think there are, we could call them the straight up HR initiatives, more work-life balance, more competitive wages, financial incentives, ending mandatory overtime. Those are straight up HR initiatives that for sure we're going to pursue. The fundamental proposition of what we're putting forward in front of nurses and other people working in the healthcare system is a new culture in healthcare. And right now you have the one criticism in common from all the doctors who've spoken out and written anonymous letters or group letters, all the nurses, all the folks who've spoken out is a complaint about healthcare leadership and elected officials, but specifically directed at healthcare leadership that they don't listen and that this group of people who by their nature as healthcare workers are willing to step up and go above and beyond are instead being demoralized because they're not being listened to, their local relatively easy fixes for local issues are being uh, cast aside, and all they get are the straight talking points from shared health or from ministers or from senior health system uh, leaders. And what we're saying is, in addition to providing the flexibility and support for those on the front lines with those HR measures that I was talking about, we also need to bring in a culture that demands accountability for the senior levels of the health system bureaucracy. More flexibility for the front lines, more accountability for the people on the top of the health of the healthcare system. And then we'll say very clearly, fix staff morale, fix the wait times. And if you can't, we'll find people who can. And I think that that sort of culture shift that reemphasizes the front lines, that reemphasizes the nurses, the aides, the healthcare professionals, physicians, I think that culture shift is a necessary prerequisite for us to be able to advance healthcare staffing in the province because I think your contention might be right. It may be right that just putting more money at the current approach is not going to solve anything. So the one thing we're proposing, which, you know, apart from investments is let's change the culture in healthcare. Let's change the culture of leadership in particular, insert more emotional intelligence into it. Or if you prefer to talk in terms of let's have leaders who can actually lead people who can listen and negotiate and validate and bring people along, let's bring that into the healthcare workforce. Because I do think there's uh, an element of truth that Manitobans understand that more of the same, just tried harder or with more vim and vigor is not going to deliver us the results we need. We need to change something more fundamental. And to me, it's the relationship between the people who run healthcare and the people who actually deliver it. So we've got one question <laughs> left. Uh, it's at times perhaps a uncomfortable. Issued, it's a, it's issued. an uncomfortable question, but yeah. I think um, in our <laughs> can't wait in our <laughs> well, all the questions have been so comfortable. Yeah, so that's far. right. Yeah. Uh, but. <laughs> uh, in our last podcast, uh, Dan, our archival researcher, uh, and he, we don't like using the word nerd on the podcast, but nerdy Manitoba historian on, on elections, uh, pointed out that in the 1999 uh, Manitoba election, uh, 16,000 votes determined about a dozen seats or so. It was a 16-vote swing between the Tories and the NDP on about 17,000 votes difference province-wide. There's the specifics there. Okay. Uh, this election is looking very similar at the current time. The, if the polls are correct and uh, the margin of error is reachable between the two parties, we're looking at a very similar amount of support for the Conservatives in, in the NDP. And that leaves uh, the potential role of the Liberal Party, which is a rare thing in Manitoba politics, going back to the days of Sharon Carstairs, perhaps, and we... Previously, I had on our show uh, Dougal Lamont from the Liberal Party, and we asked him the same question. Uh, there is a potential that there may be uh, a few thousand votes that would result in a very close, tight election uh, where the Liberals may be, uh, have a role in the provincial government and in perhaps minority mandate. Uh, would you be interested in working with the Liberal Party? And if so, what would that look like? Well, what issues perhaps do you see as connective threads between the two of you? Well, I'd be prepared to work with anyone in Manitoba if we can do good things for the province. And in the scenarios that you're considering, maybe there's a scenario where we have to ask a progressive conservative to serve as the Speaker of the House. Again, 
all things are possible. But on a more I'm writing that realistic uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. level. No, a big star. <laughs> news on the podcast here. Tori is speaker. You know, Myrna Dreger might run again if you were Just to, to hear that. Just to hear yeah. that. Yeah. But on a more so. serious level, what I would say is you think about the boards that the province appoints. If there's a conservative candidate there who can help bring expertise to the way we run uh, a crown business, then I would happily work with them. If there's somebody with a liberal affiliation who can serve on a regional health authority board and advance the culture change that I'm talking about, I would happily work with them. But right now, during this election period, I am asking for your vote. I am asking for you to vote for the Manitoba NDP. I think that if you want to fix health care and deliver a more affordable quality of life, we need a change in government. And so that's why your vote is so important. So whether you're somebody who's disillusioned with the progressive conservatives, somebody who's considering a liberal vote, this time around, I'm asking you to vote for the Manitoba NDP so that we can have a change in government and pursue the new approach that I'm talking about. So uh, you've gone through the second run. How was the second visit to the podcast? Was it as enjoyable as the first? <laughs> it was uh, It was definitely a good time. I mean... <laughs> 1A, 1B in if terms of like have, all-time so that great podcast. If podcasts. you only have one podcast to do, you should do this podcast. Like we should get that on the poster. We don't you have a poster. love all your children equally. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, here's what else you need to know today. You guys could uh, work in the catchphrase right. like that. And then, you know, I definitely rank you above the daily in my podcast. Uh, uh, well, my you, podcast been, list. Flattery will get you too. everywhere. Uh, but uh, we didn't talk about butter tarts this time around. So I'd say that's a win. Uh, yeah, no, uh, or raisins or raisins. That's yeah. Right. It's sorry. You have to listen to the entire archive to figure out why raisins are a weird recurring topic in the, in the world of this podcast anyways. Uh, but yeah, big me Gretchen, thanks for coming on the podcast, especially in the middle of an election campaign, uh, where your schedule is, is down to the minute and uh, I can see your staff quickly planning out your next, uh, your next visit. She's I'm buying sure you're more off. parking, I think, on her phone. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, <laughs> probably right. <laughs> Downtown parking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but uh, you know, big Civic thanks for coming over to uh, to hang out with us here at the CJNU studios for the Neon and Lone Ranger podcast. Yep, thank you very much. And we do say this to every leader who comes in: Good luck on October the third. Well, thank you, and thanks so much for uh, what you do. Mm-hmm.